Hey, you're listening to New Things Under the Sun. I'm Matt Clancy. This week's podcast, Measuring Knowledge Spillovers, The Trouble with Patent Citations. As a source of data for studying innovation, patents are really seductive. There's nothing else quite like them. You've got detailed descriptions over millions of inventions. They go back over a century. They're from all corners of the economy. And each one is validated by an expert as being novel, useful, and non-obvious. But at the same time, they have real biases. Not every invention gets patented. In fact, it may be more common that inventions don't get patented, but we'll have to talk about that some other time. And not every patent represents a useful invention. Worse, the set of things that get patented isn't just a random sample. There are systematic differences in the kinds of things that get patented and the kinds of things that don't. It's a constant source of tension for me as someone who writes about social science research on innovation, because the majority of these papers are based on patent data. And the question I'm always struggling with is, does this cool result hold up when we use an alternative to patent data? What we're going to talk about today, though, is just one aspect of this patent problem, which is what are patent citations really telling us? So patent citations are the citations that patents make to something called prior art, and that does include other patents. And that's what we're going to focus on today. Citations from patents to patents. So why do we care about patent citations? Because one of the most important things about innovation as compared to other stuff is that knowledge spills over to new applications. Understanding exactly how and why that happens is a big part of the problem of understanding how innovation happens. And citations promise this very clean way to identify these knowledge spillovers or at least they seem to. So I think most researchers who begin to study patents, and I include myself here uh, when I first started studying them, we start out by thinking of patent citations in the same way that we think of the citations we make ourselves in our academic work. Now for an academic, a citation is simply the address for an idea that you're referencing, uh, whether that is an idea you're building on, critiquing, or just sort of acknowledging. In short, They provide this list of ideas that we're engaging with when we make our own intellectual contributions. And now if we think of a patent as analogous analogous to that, well then a patent citation is basically like a citation in a research paper and they're a great way to measure the flows and uses of knowledge. And it is true that sometimes that's what a citation in a patent is, but just as often it's not. Uh, In this post, I'm going to walk through some of the ways or some of the issues we have in using citations as a proxy for knowledge flows. But I am ultimately going to argue they're still useful in some contexts, and especially when you use them in concert with different forms of evidence that have their own different strengths and weaknesses. A first important distinction between citations in academia and citations in patents is that whereas the former, that is academic citations, they tend to be added exclusively by co-authors, many parties besides the inventor can add citations to a patent. And that gets to the differing rationales for citations in academic papers and patents. Citations in patents are mainly about establishing that an invention is eligible for a patent. In the sense that the invention is novel, it's making a non-obvious improvement on any existing work. In the USA, inventors have a duty to disclose all relevant information they're aware of, or they risk having their patent invalidated upon getting it challenged. And you you might think that that's going to imply inventors will cite any patents for inventions whose ideas they improved on. But many other citations could also be added to show that the invention is just legally patentable. 
For example, you might cite a famous patent for a GMO crop just to sort of show that GMO crops are themselves a patentable technology. Or you might have a citation that uh, it, to prove that its improvements are not obvious. So for, uh, perhaps you're going to cite improvements made by other patents only to argue that those ones are distinct from what your own improvement. Importantly, these citations can be added by patent attorneys or the patent examiner evaluating the application for a patent. Or a citation might be added by the inventor, but only after they have completed their invention and have sort of begun this, the research that they need to do to secure a patent. So for a variety of reasons, it could well be that a patent is cited, even though the inventor was completely unaware of it while they were doing the R&D that resulted in the invention. And you can get a sense of how common this is by looking at a survey by Jaffe, Trachtenberg, and Fogarty conducted in the 1990s. They just used the addresses that inventors listed on their patents to mail a bunch of them surveys asking about a citation that they had made. Now, only 38% of 166 respondents knew about the cited patent before or during the invention process. That is to say, the majority of citations, so 62%, don't represent knowledge flows at all. The inventor only became aware of the patent that they cited after the invention was already complete. Or we can look at, uh, in 2002, the U.S. Patent and Trademark Office began to report whether a citation was added by a patent examiner or the applicant or another party. For citations made between 2005 and 2014, around a quarter of the citations were added by the patent examiner, not the inventor. Again, that means that a large share of citations on patents probably aren't measuring knowledge flows in the sense that they weren't even added by the inventor. So what's the bottom line? A fraction of citations probably do correspond to genuine knowledge flows, but only a fraction. So in Jaffe, Trachtenberg, and Fogarty's survey, they do ask respondents what they learned from the cited patent, and many of the answers correspond to the kind of things we want citations to be, if we're an academic anyway. Inventors said, for example, that they learned about a concept that could be improved, or from the citation they learned that an idea was technically feasible, or they sometimes say they just learned other information useful for development. So these kinds of citations uh, exist, but they're probably in the minority. So, so far we have two problems with citations. First, they're frequently not added by the inventors themselves. Second, even the citations and inventor ads don't necessarily serve as a simple record of the ideas that were useful in the invention process, because that's not what the citations are for. But there's a third problem, and that's when a patent applicant intentionally doesn't cite all relevant patents but they strategically cite documents as part of a strategy that they believe is going to help them make their application more likely to succeed or get their patent less likely to be invalidated or something like that. Now, as noted above, applicants have this legal duty to disclose all relevant information. If you don't do it, in theory, your patent could be invalidated in a subsequent court challenge. So that creates this incentive not to withhold relevant information. But on the other hand, if you draw the patent examiner's attention to the existence of a patent covering some aspect of your invention, you might have to settle for a narrower set of claims about what's protected under your patent, because some things have already been covered by other patents. So there's this gamble in play, or at least there might be the perception of a gamble by this applicant, and that's, that's all that really matters. If you can get away with citing less, you might be able to get a patent covering a wider range of things but at the risk of the patent not holding up in court. And it looks like how patent applicants think about this gamble does matter, and it has also changed over time. 
So let's start with a paper by Ryan Lampe from 2012 called Strategic Citation. Lampe is looking for evidence that applicants are intentionally withholding relevant citations during their applications. Now to do that, he's going to make the assumption that applicants probably know about patents that they or their co-authors have previously cited in other patents. Then he looks at the citations the patent examiner added. And these are, remember, these are going to be citations that the examiner has decided are relevant to the patent application. If the applicant knew about these patents but didn't supply them, and the patent examiner thinks that they are in fact relevant, well, it's possible the applicant was trying to sneak something by the examiner. Now, that doesn't prove that, uh, but it is suggestive. So does this happen much? Is it common? Yeah, it actually is. Uh, Restricting attention to patents that someone on the inventing team had previously cited in one of their other patents. About 20% were not added by the applicants, but were judged relevant and then added later by the patent examiner. So the extent of this withholding is actually lowest for the patents that are typically considered most valuable, and therefore the ones that would have the most to lose if the patent actually got invalidated for forgetting to include important information. That includes patents like uh, for drugs and chemical technologies, or for patents that end up getting the most citations from other patents in the future. And that's a really common proxy for the value of a patent. Uh, We don't have time to go into it now, but it does seem to work pretty well. Now, on the other hand, larger firms are more likely to instead withhold potentially relevant citations. That's possibly because they have more resources to defend challenges, uh, or maybe it's because they just hold so many patents that they're less risk averse. You know, they can afford to take a gamble. Now, all that indicates that's another way that citations might be missing relevant work. We don't know what applicants fail to cite and the examiners fail to catch. But there's also the opposite problem, actually, and that's the citation of irrelevant work. So why would a patent applicant try to cite irrelevant work? Well, there's a couple different possible explanations. One potential rationale is that it could be another way to try and sneak something past the examiner. Or just as importantly, the applicant might believe that this is a way to sneak something by, whether or not it's actually true. And the way they could do this is if they try to sort of hide an important citation underneath tons and tons of meaningless ones so that the examiner doesn't have the time or the energy to scrutinize the one that really counts. There's also more benign explanations. It could be that the applicant just has this overly generous interpretation about his duty to disclose all relevant information. And since a patent could be invalidated by failing to cite relevant material, and since it's costless for the applicant to cite more stuff, he might think, well, why not just cite everything that's even remotely relevant, even if, you know, an objective person would say that's completely irrelevant. Unlike omitted citations, there's some evidence that this problem has actually become much more severe in the last decade. There's a paper by Kuhn, Young, and Marco from 2020 that documents the rise of what I'll call super citing patents. That's a relatively small share of patents who cite so many patents themselves that they skew the entire landscape of citations. Now, it's most common for a patent to cite less than 20 other patents. In 2014, that described about 75% of patents. Sometimes it is appropriate for a patent to cite more than 20, uh, perhaps up to 100 different patents. And in these cases, you know, it might be appropriate, but it is difficult for the patent examiner to, you know, to carefully check every citation that's offered. Still, 95% of patents in 2014 made 100 or fewer citations, and the vast majority of those, 75%, 
made less than 20 citations. But there's another 5%, and that remaining 5% is starting to cause problems. These patents, which were all but non-existent prior to the year 2000, cite more than 100 uh, patents each. In fact, the small number of super-citing patents, even though they're only 5% of patents, they now account for nearly half of all patent citations. Moreover, the quality of the citations made by these super-citers is really dubious. Kuhn, Young, and Marco compute the similarity of the text of citing and cited patents, and that's based on the degree to which they both contain the same words that are otherwise uncommon. Now, as indicated in a figure that you can't see in the newsletter, the similarity of citing and cited patents gets steadily worse as a patent makes more and more citations. That is to say, patents that cite, you know, 20 or fewer, most of the citations are textually pretty similar to the, you know, there's a high similarity between the citing patent and the cited. Patents that are citing more than 100, there's not a lot of similarity of the text of the citing patent and the cited patents. What's particularly worrying is that they also show that the rising share of these low-quality citations is actually eroding the usefulness of citations for studying patents. The average textual similarity of all citing and cited patents has now been declining for decades as the share of citations associated with these superciters is rising. And they also replicate a few canonical results from the economics of innovation that rely on patent citations, and they show that these results are being affected by the decline in the quality of citations. For example, there's a famous result in the patent literature that showed that firms whose patents receive more citations are more valuable than otherwise observationally similar firms whose patents receive fewer citations. And they do this by looking at the uh, value in the stock market. But the magnitude of this correlation between how many citations your patents get and your value in the stock market has halved between 2003 and 2008. Patents just don't seem to be worth as much as they, or patent citations just don't seem to be worth as much as they used to be, at least as judged by the market. Now, another study, which I've talked about before, used patent citations in the 1980s and 1990s to measure local knowledge flows. Uh, Essentially, this old paper showed patents are much more likely to cite the patents of local inventors as compared to distant inventors of the same technology. And that's long been used as a line of evidence about the importance of local knowledge spillovers and why innovation is clustered in cities. Now, Kuhn, Marco, and Young, they're going to update this study, which was based on patents from the 80s and 90s through today, And they're going to show that the results differ significantly if you try to control for the rise of these low-quality patents. If you do control for them, or I'm sorry, if you don't control for them, it looks like the propensity to cite local work has remained very stable and sort of consistent all the way up to the present day. But if you do adjust for the quality of the citations, you show that the propensity to cite locally has fallen considerably, which is something that I'm sort of biased to believing because uh, I've got all these articles that that you can look up about the decline of local knowledge spillovers. So uh, to conclude, you know, citations have problems. But it's important to remember that at the end of the day, there is genuinely useful information in a subset of patent citations, and that, you know, some information is better than none. So to begin with, we have that old survey evidence that the inventors knew about 38% of the citations on their patent before or during the inventive process. And there was another survey uh, from the 1990s, and where in this one, inventors, uh, this time in the EU, rated the patent literature as one of the most important sources of knowledge that they use to develop innovations. Now, an important limitation is that in that survey, we don't know, we don't see if 
the debt to the patent literature is reflected in citations. We can look at more recent evidence, though, too. In the last decade, partially in response to this dawning recognition that patent citations aren't a nice analog for academic citations, but also partially due just to the growing sophistication of natural language processing tools, the research community has really begun developing really good tools uh, to analyze the raw text of patents. And increasingly, scholars are tracking knowledge flows by looking at the similarity of the textual description of inventions in patents. And somewhat reassuringly, there's a lot of overlap between the textual similarity and citation data. So Young and Kuhn, two of the authors on one of the papers we've talked about, they show that the similarity of text between patents is about as good a predictor of citation as other methods, which are based on, for example, the U.S. patent classification system, which uh, is a way of classifying technology or patents as belonging to different technologies. Another paper by Feng in 2020 showed that the text of patents with a direct citation link between each other is about two and a half times as similar to each other as a baseline, and that's about the same difference as having the same inventor on two different patents. So given all that, is it time to give up on patent citations? I don't think so. They're an imperfect source of information, but you know that's life in the social sciences. Uh, the best we can do is understand the strengths and weaknesses of that data and try to find cases where different kinds of data tell a mutually confirming story. So if you look at back on this newsletter, whenever possible, I try to complement patent-based papers with others that look at the same question through a different set of data. It's not always possible, though, because patent data is just one of a kind. But when it's not, you know, I personally do consider the results more provisional than they would otherwise be, especially if the citation data is of a more recent vintage. Thanks. And now it's time for the standard end of the episode boilerplate. You've been listening to a podcast from New Things Under the Sun, a living literature review with the mission of communicating what academia knows about innovation in accessible but rigorous research syntheses. New Things Under the Sun is a living literature review, which means I go back and update these research syntheses as new research is published or I discover it. The podcast you listen to is taken from the first published version of one of these syntheses. To see if there's been any updates about the claims made in this podcast, or to learn more about this project, head to newthingsunderthesun.com.